Hello, you're listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith. I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. For today's big dietetic debate, I'm really delighted to be joined by registered nutritionist and co-founder of the complete nutrition food company, Huel, James Collier. James has 30 years of experience working in nutrition and dietetics as a clinical dietitian for the NHS, a nutrition consultant in the fitness industry, and more recently, co-founding Huel. I'm sure lots of you listening will be familiar with this brand and will have seen Huel products everywhere from supermarket shelves to even vending machines in airports. Huel was started in 2015 with a mission to make nutritionally complete, convenient, affordable food with minimal impact on animals and the environment. James is a perfect guest for us to host today as we chat about the role of powdered and ready-to-drink shakes and ask the controversial question, should they replace traditional meals? Before we go any further, I'm going to hand over to James so he can tell us a bit more about himself. Hi, Harriet. Thanks for the introduction. As I said, I'm James Collier. I'm a registered nutritionist. Um, I'm co-founder of Huel. Uh, prior to Huel, I was an NHS dietitian back in the... 19 uh back in the 1990s actually did seven years working at a couple of hospitals where i worked at in intensive care and also looked at enteral nutrition as well as outpatients then i spent several years in the fitness industry in particular in bodybuilding um ran a website called muscle talk um and did but during this time i was always working as a nutrition consultant um where i looked at uh, did meal plans for care homes, etc. And then in 2015, I co-founded Huel, um, which is Nutritionally Complete Food. Thank you for your introduction, James. It's great to have you with us today, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So as you may or may not be aware, we often begin the episode by asking our guest three quickfire questions so that we can get to know you on a more personal level. My first question to you, James, is are you a morning or a night owl? Depends what activity. Um, I can I'm better exercising later in the day, but probably better reading first thing in the morning when my mind's clear and then working. It depends on how well I've slept, etc. So probably a day person. Okay, that's interesting. And um, your ideal weekend, tell us what that would look like for you. I probably involve at least one trip to the gym, probably on a Saturday morning. Definitely do some reading probably on a Saturday morning and maybe afternoon and maybe a bit on the Sunday morning. Spend some time with friends, maybe have a coffee with a with a mate or and perhaps go out for a meal with my wife and other friends as well. And definitely involve sitting in front of TV watching a box set of some description. A bit of a bit of a binge time, but not too much. <clears throat> Everything in moderation. Sounds like a good weekend. Right. And finally, what are you currently reading? I'm actually reading a book at the moment um, called Home Cooking in the Global Village by Richard Wilk. Why am I reading that, you may ask, is because I'm trying to, I was thought to be a good nutritionist, you need to have a, a wide range of knowledge. So looking at the culture of food as well as all the, all the other aspects that we sort of more traditionally learn as nutritionists. So it's very much about culture, but more with a Caribbean emphasis. It was about 20 years ago, I think the book was written. I'd heard about it. So I looked for it and found a tatty copy on eBay. And it's, it's. I won't say it's brilliantly written, but it's certainly useful. 
I think that raises a really great point that um, there's so many different cultures and food obviously fits into that. And um, reading around that as dietitians and nutritionists, it's so important so that we can relate to people we work with, consumers, patients. So that sounds really interesting. Thanks, James. So we're going to delve into our topics for discussion today. So you're probably best known for being one of the founders and formulators behind Huel. But similar to many of our listeners, you mentioned in your introduction that you actually started your career in the NHS as a dietitian. So what initially led you into the world of nutrition and dietetics, James? Good question, Harriet. Um, I think there's two things I always attribute to my interest in nutrition. One was I was always a scrawny kid and probably bullied a bit at school. And when I got to 15, I'd had enough and I found the gym. And then I wanted to do anything I could to make my muscles bigger, which knowledge is power and all that. So I thought, let's learn. And you know, that involved good nutrition. Um, the other aspect was um, my when I was probably about eight, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, this was back in the early 80s. And... I didn't know at the time, but she was only given a few months to live. Um, she did actually survive another 11 years. And that involved her adopting, changing her nutrition and lifestyle for that. And so I was brought up right from the age of eight with nutrition all around me. Now, some of those things that she did were probably a bit pseudoscience and stuff that I fight against these days. But that's not the point. The point is there was a focus on nutrition. And it also involved a lot of good food. So I think it's probably a bit of both of those. What an incredible story to share. Thank you very much for um, sharing that with us and incredible to hear the power that food had on your own family. Now, um, fast forward to today in your role at Huel, James, tell us what a typical day looks for you now. I appreciate it's probably not a typical day. You hit it. Exactly. I, I've, I've Even before this thing called COVID came along and working from home was a thing, I used to work from home three days uh, a week then and in the office, which is in Tring in Hertfordshire. And it's a bit of a trek for me. Um, so it's going twice a week, which is still sort of typical what I do now. So days I'm at home, I probably get more work done. <laughs> and so as in I'm in, in a spreadsheet or more writing or uh, and reading stuff that I need to read. When I'm in HQ, it's definitely a lot more meetings because um, although Zoom's great, as we're doing now, it's uh, it, meetings are a little bit more productive, I think, in person. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and it's really interesting to hear about the journey that Huel's been on over the years since you co-founded it. But I'm interested to hear what made Huel a business that you wanted to develop and work within? So the main founder of Yule is, is Julian Hearn, um, and he contacted me a year before we actually officially launched with this great idea he's got of this powdered food where containing everything. And see, then he commissioned me to come up with a recipe, and we worked. I worked with him initially, and it sort of evolved from there. So I didn't didn't necessarily set out to work in Yule. I was commissioned as a as a freelancer, if you like, originally to come up with a formula um, and then there were several other projects in the first year and it took us a year to launch and then in the first week of launching which was June 2015 then Julian said look you know we should be you know be, be my co-founder please so I said yes please within about one second and it went from there and the rest is history I guess yes yes it's just we're not even eight years old yet 
And tell me about some of the cross-transferable skills that you bring to the business from your nutrition and dietetic background. I'm quite lucky that I've got quite a, a range of experience. So I've worked in the NHS um, seven years, worked in the fitness industry, um, which involved a lot of different sports, obviously a lot of bodybuilders. That was my, my own pastime. But it was a lot of fighters as well, working with care homes a lot. I used to write for consumer magazines back then. My local paper, I had a little bit in there. Some people might have heard of Muscle and Fitness magazine. Don't even know if it's still going. I used to have a regular monthly column there as well. So I got quite a quite a range. So when, when Huel came along, um, I hadn't worked in product development. I'd done, I think I'd helped with one um, sports supplement before. Um and I've done a bit of advice for them and I'd read a lot about them. And obviously there's a lot of rubbish out there, but I've done nothing in the sort of conventional food space. Um, so I developed this on paper and then we worked with our co-manufacturer to make it, to make you what it is um, originally. So I've got quite a, quite a range of skills and it's been really useful, especially with my clinical background. Um, because we have, we get a lot of clinical inquiries. They could be from dietitians asking about your, which is getting more and more regular now, now we're, and more people are hearing about us. But also we get a lot from people saying, can I have your, I've got this condition. Now, obviously we can't provide advice on that condition, but we can say, you know, you know, your, there wouldn't be interaction, any interactions with these drugs, with anything that's in there and things like that. So having that clinical knowledge, enables me to answer those questions um, more, you know, be useful to our potential customers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've just emphasized how dietitians can go from clinical settings into industry settings and transfer those really valuable skills in whichever area you work in. So you mentioned in your answer just now about Huel gaining a lot of traction and becoming better known amongst the general public. In fact, Huel's been phenomenally successful and garnered the investment from really high profile names such as Stephen Bartlett, right through to Jonathan Ross. So in your opinion, James, what is it that sets Huel apart from your competitors? So we've sold in the nearly eight years, we sold well over 300 million meals, which is pretty impressive. And that's globally, although our biggest market is still the UK, shortly followed by the US and, and then Germany. Um what, what what are our, our competitors? Well, we the space that we that Huel is is called Complete Foods. People call us meal replacements. I don't see that for reasons we can come on to maybe in, in a moment. Um, there are a few other Complete Food brands out there. Um, all Huel products are plant based, which not all of our competitors are. So that's really important because in the third decade of the third millennium, sustainable nutrition to me is one concept. There's not nutrition and sustainability, we have to think of them together. So, which is what we do at Huel. So it's about choosing the right ingredients that will meet everyone's nutritional requirements, but will also uh, be appropriate for everything ESG, which is environment, um, environment social governance, is a term people may not be familiar with. But so we've got to know our supply chain, we've got to know the carbon impact of all our products, which is things we're, we're working on and trying to get better on, better on still. So we we also there's um, six uh, registered nutritionists or dietitians in the business, um, which I don't think many other food brands have. And there's a bunch of others as well who 
have got nutrition degrees or nutrition as their background. They may be working in our new product development department, our technical department, even in our marketing department. So we've got quite a range of, of nutrition skills in there. And I think that sets us apart. I think so. It's relatively rare to come across a food brand that um, is so invested in nutritionists and dietitians right from concept through to completion. Um, So that's great to hear, James. And I'm curious to hear, I have to ask you, do you use fuel personally in your diet? And if so, how do you incorporate it into your typical routine? I don't have a typical routine, especially nutritionally, believe it or not. I'm a big advocate of, of variety. And that means now we've got a range of fuel products. I can, I, I do regularly have fuel on this because I get it for free. So of course, um, but the, when I'm, if I'm driving, I'll probably go for the RTDs, but when I'm at home, I will have one of the, the, the powders before bed. I have our complete protein powder as well, which is the emphasis there is on, on the protein, although it's got all the vitamins and minerals as well. Again, it's plant-based. Um, and yeah, and otherwise, Parts of my diet. I, I, I'm not a vegan, but I do limit the animal pro- products in my diet. I try and make sure a maximum of 10% of my calories come from animal, uh, which includes fish. The Western average, by the way, for people's reference, is 28 to 30% uh, of calories. So about a third. Now, I don't walk around with a calculator and a copy of McCanson Widders, that's for sure, but I kind of know what that is. I have some the usual rules two or three days a week without any animal products what's your portion size that's all we need um so i do have a lot of plant-based uh meals as well practice what you preach as you say um so in terms of the products so some of our listeners uh, mainly are dietitians and nutritionists and they may well be aware of fuel but perhaps not tried them for themselves so Obviously, your range includes everything from powders through to ready to drink and protein bars and even savory meals like your mac and cheese. In this episode specifically, I'd really love to focus on the powders and the ready to drink range. For people who aren't familiar with these products, can you explain what are in the Huel powder products and how do you typically make them up? Okay, good question. I'll try and be brief answering this, although that's going to be challenging. So we launched in 2015 with um, Huel Powder, which is the white pouch that people will be familiar with. That has a, a macro ratio. So that's of um, 40% carbs, uh, 30% protein, 30% fat. Uh, now, and 3% of those carbs comes from the fiber. Uh, now, the primary ingredients are oats. There's a bit of tapioca in that's as much for consistency as it is for carbs. Um, then there's pea protein and brown rice protein. So we've got the combination of the two proteins. So we can ensure that the, the quality of protein is right. It's got all the essential amino acids in adequate amounts. It, um, it's score high on the PDC AAS score for, for protein. We've also, for fats, we've got sunflower oil for the omega-6s, which uh, linoleic acid is, uh, hopefully the listeners will know, is essential. So we have to have that in. We've got this flax, milled flaxseed, primarily for omega-3s, um, ALA, alpha-linolenic acid, which is an essential omega-3. We have to have that in a good amount because, as your listeners may know, the conversion to DHA and EPA isn't brilliant. So the only way that we can ensure you know a good conversion, especially to DHA, which is really important, um, 
that we have a, a, a really good amount of it in. But flaxseed also provides a bunch of other nutrients as well, like vitamin E, many uh, many of the minerals. We've also got MCT powder, which uh, medium chain triglycerides. I realise some people aren't bought into this, but um, although they're a fat and technically a saturated fat, they're absorbed uh, and bioavailable differently to the long chain triglycerides. And then, then to be nutritionally complete, we have to ensure that we meet certain levels of all nutrients. So we have a, a vitamin mineral blend that's bespoke for each type of product <clears throat> that has all and meets the levels of the vitamins and minerals that we want to achieve. So some of them, bunch of them are naturally occurring for the main ingredients I've just mentioned, but we do add extra ones in obviously like B12 that in plant-based diets are typically low. So make sure there's a more higher than the recommended daily amount of, of that in. So I think we can go 140% per 2000 calories. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, and good amount of vitamin D, of course, adequate vitamin C because uh, being plant-based and grain-based uh, products are quite high in phytic acid. Now phytic acid is an antioxidant in, in its own Right, but it's also an anti-nutrient, as people may know, which means it can uh, inhibit the absorption of iron. So Huel is really high in iron, and it's also really high in vitamin C because people with vitamin C helps the absorption of iron. We've done blood tests, and we found that there, there are no issues. People have a really good um, iron level. The Huel Black Edition, which is the black pouch, we bought it, I think, three years ago, has a different macro ratio. It's lower in carbs, 20% carbs, and the rest comes from the essential fats, and the protein. Now, I know there's a controversy over what level of carbs is right and what isn't. But as I stated earlier, my, when we're talking about my own diet, a variety is important. So by giving another uh, macro ratio, as a, we give people the option of not just sticking to, to one product as part of their total eating regime. Uh, that doesn't contain oats. It's just got the tapioca. Um, and obviously a high level of omega-3s as well. So that's broadly covered the two main powders. Um, we've also got the protein powder, which I call complete protein, which also mentioned, which is a, a protein powder quite typical to the to other um, vegan protein powders, but it's got crucial differences. It's got the essential fatty acids in it, and it's got all the vitamins and minerals at the appropriate level per serving. So it's more than just a... Um, it's more than just a normal vegan protein powder. I think people listening will be really impressed the level of scientific detail and thought that's clearly gone into uh, creation of all your Huel products, but it must have brought up challenges along the way. So from a nutritional perspective, what would you say was the greatest challenge in creating these products? Nutritional perspective. Well, the products have evolved over time. So the original powder formula version 1.0 that was in 2015 changed pretty rapidly in the first few years because I learned that this can be better. I, I learned on, you know, science progressed, my, my knowledge got better. So it was keeping up, up to date in the early stages. Then, of course, although the initial powder tasted fine, I wouldn't describe it as nice. So now we've got a great MPD team who come along uh, and make this stuff taste really nice. I think so, and a lot of other people do. Clearly they do because it sells quite well. So the challenge there was making sure that we can keep the high level of nutrition that we're used to whilst making everything taste nice. Because if we feel that we have a 
product that's superior both from a sustainability perspective and a nutritional perspective to what a lot of people are eating in their normal diets. We have to make it both affordable and something that people want. Otherwise, we've failed in our initial goals because no one will buy it. So um, it's been it's challenging to and now there's more people in the in the business. It's great because we've got so many so many skills, um, especially when you're bringing up the supply chain issues as well. So it's choosing the right choosing the right ingredients to make it taste nice whilst maintaining the high nutritional standard. Really, Harriet. Yeah, that, that's really interesting and, and so fascinating how you've got nutrition people embedded in all these different departments. You mentioned like MPD and marketing, et cetera, and how you're all working together to continuously innovate the products. So we've mentioned this term nutritionally complete food quite frequently through this episode. So can you explain to our listeners what exactly does that term mean and what conditions does a food product have to meet in order to be able to use that term on the food label? We have to, as as people will know, there's um, certain nutrients are essential. You need them for life. So we spoke up, spoke about the essential fatty acids, um, and then there's obviously the nine essential amino acids, um, and then there's all the twenty six, twenty seven essential vitamins and minerals. The the question mark is over choline. The Americans say it's essential. We don't because you can synthesize it in the body, but technically, really, I, I think it should be essential because there's not enough. So we, we have to have um, meat. The regulations state in UK and EU that per serving, you have to have at least 15% of all the um, vitamins and minerals to be nutritionally complete. That's to meet the source of claim. Um, we easily meet that on all our, on all our products. We, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but we set out everything to be nutrition complete at 2000 calories. So if one were to have 2000 calories a day of our products, they would meet the new, all essential nutrients. Obviously, that's not what we expect people to do. We expect people to have fuel as part of a nutritious diet, but we have to have, um, that's how we work it out to make sure that everything is nutritionally complete. We work, we work on that 2000 calorie model. Um, and indeed we have, we do have some hooligans. That's what we call people who regularly consume fuel, uh, that are on hundred percent fuel. Now we, we don't and wouldn't active actively go out and recommend that people do this because there are so many other benefits from eating solid food as meals, etc. that we could, we could talk about all day. And you know, I wouldn't want to just weigh that, but, there's no nutritional reason why people can't have our powders, 100% our powders, um, and some people, by their own choice, do um, uh, do this. And let's be honest, there's a lot of people having way more than 2,000 calories a day of crap food every day, long term. It's really interesting how Huel can provide such a flexible approach to different consumers, um, whether it's, you know, one once a day that they're having it or, as you say, more frequently. And certainly I've come across lots of people um, who incorporate Huel into their diet in some particular way. But on the other hand, people could argue that Huel is perhaps deemed to be one of these ultra processed foods. Um, there's been a lot of press, a lot of um, controversy surrounding processed foods. So what are your thoughts on this term ultra processed? There's a discussion, Harriet, the one that you know, I went to the Nutrition Society uh, Winter Conference in January, and it was the main theme of the whole event. 
So there's been attempts to define this term. The, the NOVA is probably the most famous, which has the, the four um, four levels of processing, which people can look up, I think, if they want to hear about. I'm very uncomfortable with any uh, all the attempts to define ultra-processed food so far. Like I've mentioned previously, where we are in the, the 2020s, we've got so many pressures. We're a social species. And in the UK, we're very privileged that we have food options. Other people aren't. And even in the UK at the moment, we've got the, uh, the cost of living crisis that people are being impacted from. So food has to be affordable. So choice is limited. And with the climate pressures, we are going to rely on processed food to feed everybody unless we drastically change um, the, the, the farming system. So we need certain foods. If you want to call them ultra-processed foods, then so be it. But unfortunately, the term has become so maligned. Of course, when we hear the term ultra-processed foods, when you and I and probably most of the listeners hear the term, we know what we're referring to. We're referring to the crap junk foods that people have way too much of. And of course, they're not good for your health. And for us, it's very clear. It's it's common sense. If, if you're educated, what we should and shouldn't be having um so but it's that as a definition it's i don't know we need another definition for sure there needs to be something that tells people what sort of foods they should be avoiding because otherwise then we're depending on talking about all the nutrients in their lower form that the term that's called food reductionism or nutritionism that some people may have may have heard about and that itself is flawed we have to you know we look at diet styles. We know the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be good for us, and that's minimally processed. But that, but if everybody was to have, you know, for example, the government tell us quite rightly that we need to eat more, more oily fish because we need the DHA and the EPA, especially for brain function. Well, if every adult was to do that, there aren't enough fish in the sea. How are we going to sort that one out? So we we need things. We we need nutrition strategies that will address uh, multiple issues at once. And that does mean that some types of food processing will uh, will be crucial to, to the challenges that we've got to face over the next few decades. Yes, and, and that's a fresh perspective because I do think this term ultra-processed has become a real buzzword that's certainly floating around at the moment. And, and like you say, you know, processed foods can mean very different things. It could be, you know, a, a tinned tomato, for example, versus a hamburger. So how do you differentiate? Perhaps it's too simplistic. Yeah. So in terms of the target audience at Huel, who are the kinds of people that typically use your powders and ready to drink products? Um, any, every adult is, is, is suitable for uh, and you know, even even some older children um, be great if they incorporated fuel in the diet, especially with the food choices they're likely making. Uh, typical people, it's uh, probably more the younger, as in the under under fifties. I, I, I believe I haven't got the stats to hand to be honest, but uh, but there are a lot of older people that are starting to have fuel because you know the elderly, for instance, it's very easy for them to have powder food, especially if they've got dental problems and they maybe not got the motivation to to prepare food for themselves. And I think we've been contacted by um, the, the children of the elderly um, who have 
asking about Huel, and they found the Huel range, including our hot and savoury range, of course, which is, for people who don't know that, as grain or pasta-based and nutrition complete meals that you add hot water to, leave stir, leave for five minutes, and then you can consume with a spoon, which are great for the for the elderly because it, it feels like real food, whereas a shake can be a bit alien to them. Um, and they've got some nutrition complete that's very easy for them to consume. So it's it, it it's very helpful. But so anyone really who who's I mean, typically it's people that need to have some form of convenience. You know, if everybody did home cooked excuse me, organic food, then great. You know, Huel is is perhaps not top of their shopping list. But for most of us, we don't live that sort of life. We're busy. And yes, it's great if we can have, um, sit down with uh, our family as much as possible because there are health benefits to that, right? Some um, anthropologists and neuroscientists have shown the health benefits of sitting down as a meal, which isn't what, you know, Huel does, but we can still... You know, three or four times a week, if you can sit down and have a meal, there are benefits to that. But so you all can be factored in as much or as little as as people like. For instance, I came across a sales rep once who um, literally had fuel twice a week because they're the days he, he went on the roads to sell, and that was suitable, which is great. You know, two meals a week, he hasn't got to worry about stopping at the service station and buying a, a crappy meal deal. Yeah, no, it's interesting, uh, all the different scenarios in which fuel can be incorporated. But we've talked very much about, you know, healthy people in the general population. So I'm interested to hear if fuel is being used in clinical practice or if this is an area that you're looking to explore as a brand. We're not actually looking to explore it as a brand because that's not what Huel's about. However, I, I am aware that Huel's been, been used clinically. Um, as I mentioned earlier, although a long time ago, I used to work in the uh, enteral tube feeding world. And uh, Huel has been used in tubes, especially for vegans who don't want to have some of the dairy-based um, sip feeds or, or, or uh, commercial clinical feeds that are available. Um, Huel, uh, quite often in clinical practice, people want something that's energy dense. So typically 1.25 to 1.5 calories per mil. I think, forgive me, it's been 20 years, but I think that's the norm these days. Um, and Huel, if you dilute it as uh, um, as per instructions or use our RTD, it's 0.8 calories per mil. So it's not as energy dense, but we've got the quality protein. We've got all the vitamins and minerals there. So it's an option. And I've been contacted by a number of dietitians and um, clinical nutritionists who have inquired uh, about using Huel. And, um, and you can put it down a tube, um, providing you flush it well, of course. And in terms of the biggest misconception, particularly amongst healthcare professionals, what would you say that is about Huel, James? So let's rewind back to autumn 2015 when I went and gave a talk to the BDA and tried to tell them about this new thing called Huel. I was met, met with a big barrier and a lot of people, what's this? This isn't real food. Fast forward to uh, 2023. Um, and I get a lot more positive response from uh, resident nutritionists and registered dietitians who are now aware of you, and I think get it more. The, 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 it's the it's not real food. That's the biggest challenge. But so we brought the hot and savoury out two and a half years ago to try and you know make people because people will see that as real food. But I would I would ask people to define real food, um, and you know, which of course. <laughs> We could say that's something grown from an organic allotment with with a goat, and but that's not what people eat these days. People have, uh, you know, like we just spoke about food processing. So 
Huel provides, you know, it's based on whole ingredients anyway. So that's if that's that's what people are after. I think people get the, get the concept of fuel now. That starting to get it. Of course, people, uh, especially of similar age to me, that's late forties, early fifties, uh, are perhaps not still not used to the idea, and they want people to consume, make their own meals. And absolutely, I encourage everyone to do that. But that's not possible. Three meals a day, seven days a week for a vast, vast, vast proportion of the population. So Huel provides uh, an easy option for that. It's clear that Huel, like you said, does provide convenience and ease, but also it can help people to meet their goals when it comes to sustainable eating, given that all of your Huel products are plant-based. So can you tell us in a bit more detail why this was an important decision, that business decision that you made early on in that journey? That's a great question. So it was 2014 when we were working on the products and we did toy with the idea for about two minutes of making this new thing we hadn't yet called Huel um, using whey protein. But then we thought, well, people are starting to talk about vegans being vegan a lot more. Now, I I had very little knowledge back then about sustainable nutrition. I've acquired this over the last few years. Um, and the, as time went on, we realised we absolutely did the right thing. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have any... Um, metrics about carbon comparison between different foods back then i don't know whether i don't even know if the science was there yet um and this isn't that long ago of course we're only talking eight years so but we absolutely did the, the right thing like i said uh, at the beginning of this interview where we are to me that the terms of sustainable nutrition is is what everyone should be thinking of when they talk about nutrition and that's the by the way that's the, the my department at Yule is the sustainable nutrition department it's not the nutrition department and I think that's a key message. Absolutely. Sustainability, it sounds like, is very embedded within your culture as well at Huel. So looking more broadly at healthy lifestyles, in your opinion, how can Huel help to fuel living a healthy lifestyle? People can have as much or as little uh, fuel products as, as they like. We've got a varied range now so people can adapt um, your products to suit whatever they whatever their goals are whatever they um, you know whatever they however much they want to have really um, to tie in with with their typical diet um, and if they're making bad food choices then your provides an option for that because a lot of people sure some of these foods that are bad for you taste really nice and people want them and they you know we we crave them. But a lot of people are having are making those food choices because it's convenience. So if we can offer um, a powdered food that takes two minutes to, you know, less than two minutes to put in a shaker and shake and, and consume, um, or for the or even more convenient, uh, the RTD bottle that you take out of the fridge and unscrew the top and pour it in your throat, um, then we've got we've got an option for people uh, on those those busy times when they're making the wrong you know, the wrong choices. Um, we thought we like to, so our RTD is available in a lot of the supermarkets now, um, all, all the major ones in the UK and a lot in, in Europe uh, and the US, hopefully soon as well. And we see the competition there as the meal deals, you know, the, the sandwich, the crisps or chocolate bar and the, and the drink, because, you know, they're questionable healthfulness those those meals sure you can make certain choices that, that are okay for sure if you get the water and you get a, a sensible snack and maybe you get one of the salads 
that's probably okay. But most people don't do that. They grab a sandwich, a pack of crisps and a, and a Coke or, or something like that. So that's, that's where we see our competition there. Um, and your provider, you know, a p- perfect option, um, perfect alternative. And uh, our RTDs fill you up as well. Obviously, satiety is subjective. Um, and some people have half an RTD, my wife, for instance, and she feels she's full up. I've got a bigger appetite and I'm have, I have one and it certainly takes, takes my hunger away. Um, so yeah, it's, there's, it's, it's the flexibility and convenience and the affordability for people. Yeah. That's really interesting how you mention it being a competitor to the traditional meal deal. And um, on that note of tradition, so as you alluded to earlier, Huel promotes itself as food, but Huel's powders and ready-to-drink products aren't meals in the traditional sense of the word. So do you believe that powdered or ready-to-drink shakes should or could replace traditional meals? They can, they can, people can have, I try and use, avoid the use of the word replace here because I don't, that's not what we're about. We're not replacing Fuel is food, and if people want for convenience to have fuel as a meal, that works. I think it's still, like I've mentioned, there's so many benefits from having, from making your own homemade meals, and I really want to encourage everyone to carry on doing that. I do it myself. If my wife's listening to this, she'd probably disagree because she does most of the cooking. Um, but um, I think it's important. There's this there's multitude of other other benefits than just from the nutritional value of food. Let's say theoretically someone chose to use Huel for all of their meals. Would there be any nutrients that you would be concerned about from a nutritional perspective that they might be missing out on? From a nutritional perspective, no. We, Like I mentioned earlier, we've got people that have been doing that some for a few years. And it's certainly, you know, that, that it, we've made it all, all the, new, the essential nutrients are there and also some of the non-essential, we've got some phytonutrients that we put in as well, like lutein um, uh, and other antioxidants. Uh, and we make sure that there's good levels, like vitamin D is way more than the RDA. We've got high levels of B12. I spoke about vitamin C and iron uh, and numerous others as well. So we've um, we've we've taken care of everything that you know people. Yeah, so people can be sure when they have fuel, they have got everything covered nutritionally. Yeah, you've covered all bases, um, yeah. certainly. And people listening may be interested to know that there's a, a, a real evidence base um, surrounding Huel. And congratulations, by the way, on Huel's first scientific article published in Frontiers of Nutrition. What a great achievement. Can you give us an overview of what this research looked at and the results that you found? Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's our first proper peer-reviewed study. We're working on others, which I can't uh, talk to more about at the moment, but hopefully won't be long before we have another one published. Um, so this study, we called it the micronutrient trial, although it's more than that, because our original goal was to make sure that Huel is fine. That was the goal. We wanted to make sure that, yeah, it's okay that in, in theory we've got the we meet all the targets for all the essential nutrients, but what about when people, what's it actually doing with people's blood? So we wanted to make sure that the key micronutrients, that the blood levels were were in, in the right range. Uh, and we found more than that. We found that it decreased uh, body, body weight, fat mass, and improved BMI, improved blood glucose markers and improved cholesterol status, 
the vitamin D, B12, iron, selenium, they were all increased. And potassium, vitamin A and vitamin E were in the correct range, which was what we were trying to achieve. We just wanted to make sure that everybody's nutrition was in the in the correct range. Um, so, yeah, they, they were the key findings, really. And that, so people had, I want to say what, what the design of the study was, sorry. People had 100% cured diet for four weeks. Um, we worked with some uh, with the res- external researchers that are based out of Newcastle University. Um, they've got a brilliant setup there. We went up there in January actually and had a look at all the you know everything they've got for the research there. It's really good setup. So we're working with them on the next trial as well. Um, yeah, and we were. It's in like you said, it's in frontiers of in, in nutrition. I think you're going to put the link in the in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. We've popped the link in the show notes. And just remind me, James, how many participants were in the study? I'll put you on the spot here. Oh, I can't remember. Was it 30, if I remember? I can't remember. Okay. Yeah, I think so. But if I've misquoted on that, sorry, you can, they can read it in the link. No, I, I did put you on the spot, to be fair. So the link to the paper is in the show notes. So do have a look at that. Was there anything that particularly surprised you about the results, James? Yes, it was... Um, Although the participants were advised on the amount of fuel to consume in order to maintain body weight during the trial, the data suggested that their total intake intake of fuel decreased over the four-week period. So there was some sort of self-elected energy restriction that resulted in a reduction in body weight in some of the participants. So when compared to baseline, um, 12 out of the 19 participants showed a falling into the excess body weight category by BMI. So in itself, the reduction in body weight can be interpreted as a, an improvement in health, which was what the, uh, the authors of the study um, put in the discussion. Interesting. So what you actually initially set out to investigate, you ended up with even more interesting findings. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Great. And in terms of future research directions, where do you think we need more uh, research in terms of nutritionally complete foods? I want to do some more work on satiety. Um, Satiety is an interesting one, right? Because we've got all this research that looks at um, some of the hormones involved, like ghrelin, PYY and GLP-1. Obviously, we've got all the new weight loss drugs that have just come out that are all GLP-1 agonists and stuff, which is really interesting. Um, and we know that leptin's involved as well, but we also know that the neurotransmitters at a neurological level, we've got you know, we've got everything involved, uh, like dopamine, our crave to food, and how it's stimulated when we see certain foods, when we have certain aromas of foods, when we talk about food, super interesting. But ultimately, let's be honest, if you if you feel full up, you can just tell me. It's a subjective thing. So yes, um, you can. I think I think the best way of talking about satiety is what people report, although it can be backed up by the objective data as well, which which I want to do research in. I think the microbiome um, should be should be looked at. I think it should be part of any, any part of nutrition research. Now our products are high in fiber and high in soluble fibers, so um, it, you know there's that, that will help the the gut micro um, gut microbes. Uh, and there's a lot of other areas I want to look at as well. Um, omega-3s are interesting. And then there's the more, rather than looking at the what's going on in the body, what about the other sort of research? How many people are, you know, what about 
have a links in with choice of plant-based diets and, and complete foods. Um, there, there's lots really. Um, uh, and then of course, so what about di- type two diabetes? Could having Huel as part of a regime help um, certain uh, markers? Or what about people that have impaired glucose tolerance or pre-diabetes? Could, could there be any benefits there? That's be really cool to look at. I'd love to love any interested academics who may be listening in. If, they, if they've got some enthusiasm, please get in touch with me. I was just thinking as you were answering that question that you've generated probably lots of dissertation and research topics for potential mm. student dietitians. So, yeah, incidentally, uh, yeah, well, there's a couple of uh, uh, Newcastle University that are doing their dissertations and they're having you all as, as part of that. So, if any um, students want to get in touch, we'll see if we can support them with with that for sure. Fantastic, and we have popped James's contact, uh, his social media handles in the show notes. So is that is that the best way to get in touch with you, James? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Now moving on to one of your personal achievements, James. Huge congratulations on your upcoming book, Thought for Food. Can you share one of the biggest messages or themes that you want to convey throughout your book? Yes, sorry, I forgot to mention this in the introduction about give myself a bit of a shameless plug. Um, I've just before Christmas, I've got a publishing deal with uh, for, for Thought for Food, which I was working on, been working on for well over two years. Um, the, I haven't got a date of release yet, hopefully autumn, but it, I've got a feeling it might go into early spring next year. The, the, um, it's effectively a food theory book that's aimed at any sort of interested adult, but it will. Uh, it, it's ideal for any people working in, in nutrition as well. I've I've just had um, had it proofread, and the, the the lady who sorted my references out for me because I couldn't be bothered to do that myself. Um, she was complaining that there were six hundred and fifty references in it. So I've tried to take a rigorous approach in there, and the key is addressing what can an individual do to address the multiple motivations that we have that we have at the moment. So we we have to eat well for our own personal and physical health. What about nutrition and mental health? What about sustainable nutrition? Then I've alluded to um, ethical eating. What is ethics when it comes to food? Should we be vegans? Shouldn't we? I try and answer that question in the book. Um, uh, I do have a problem with intensive factory farming. So I do uh, avoid um, that you know, those animals that farm that way myself. Uh, and I've also mentioned about eating together, eating as a community. So it's how one, um, how we should structure our diet to uh, address those issues at the same time. So the first part of the book, I think in order to do that, we have to understand why we eat what we eat. So I identified 25 different reasons that affect our food choice. Some of them are quite obvious, like the organoleptics or the marketing of food or what's available, or shelf life. But I've also looked into things like religious and cultural, other cultural aspects. I identified 25, I can't remember them all off the top of my head here. Um, I focus in particular on two of them. That's the the biology, a chapter called Biology's Overwhelming Grip, which we talk, I talk about um, the hormones, the, a lot about the neuroscience of appetite, and also the gut microbiome. And then, then another aspect, another chapter covers uh, the culture, cultural influences. And then, then I address the five main issues that I've just discussed. And then um, in the last part, I look at 
a few issues, a few conflicts where, you know, like I mentioned the fish thing, like we, we need to eat more omega-3s, but there's not enough fish in the sea. Another one might be, for instance, when I was a, a student dietitian back in the uh, in the early early 90s, I was always told to encourage my um, my patients in obesity clinics to, when they, they feel full, just stop eating and throw the rest away. Well, we're now told quite rightly that we shouldn't be wasting food. So how does one navigate those, you know, are the, are the sub-chapters called waste or waste? Two spellings, waste. Waste around the midsection or waste doesn't throw it away. Um, so there's things like that. I've looked at a, uh, the dark side of sustainable nu- nutrition, which if anybody's interested, um, it's, I talk about um, orthorexia and how it relates to clean eating in um, in sustainable diets. And there's an article I've actually published on LinkedIn, if people want to read that, that's a bit of a section from from the book. Um, and also there's a whole chapter on food technology and food processing there. And I discuss the Nova in detail, as well as the nutritionism paradigm where people, you know, food reductionism, where people with too much emphasis on talking about protein, fats, carbs, and vitamins and minerals rather than food as a whole. Um, and I try to give advice on what people should, um, you know, should be looking for to improve their nutrition. But the key is in the title, it's thoughtful food. It's about mindfulness eating is a term I use contemplative nutrition is my term I've created in there I want people to think just a little bit about what they're eating because too many people blindly just follow their instincts oh this is easy to get eat this tastes nice and we've we've adapted uh, in modern society that we think that's okay and it's clearly not wow that sounds like a a really fascinating approach to um to nutrition and eating, and I look forward to reading it myself. Um, just talk us through what the impetus was for you writing that book. What led to you deciding to embark on this, what I can only imagine was a challenge? So that's interesting. So I've always liked writing. I've written a lot of articles, did a lot when I was in the, uh, the bodybuilding world, like I mentioned, I wrote for magazines, but I felt I could do better. And I read a lot of popular science uh, nonfiction, and I felt... I'd like to be in that space. I think I've got some ideas in nutrition that are perhaps a bit different. I've got a few other things that I want to share with with the world. And if people don't like them, then hopefully they'll they'll tell me. Because after all, science is about sharing knowledge and and progression. So I'm I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that like the audience that are listening to this podcast, for instance, they won't just come along and say, oh, this book's great, James. I want people to think, yeah, maybe broadly, you know, love, love people to enjoy it, of course. Um, and I want people to say, broadly speaking, I enjoyed it, but I've got a bit of an issue with this bit here. And then tell me why, and then I can learn and we can progress because that's the goal. It's about it's about progression. So I, I really love the writing process. You know, the term flow state when we get in the zone and we're a bit of in the I get there when I'm when I'm in the mood, not all the time. Sometimes it can be a bit of a chore, but most of the time when I get in there and next thing I look, three or four hours have gone by and I haven't even noticed. Um, I love going through, you know, I, I'm not, a, not an academic, of course, never have been and never will be, but I enjoy reading other people's research. So, re- you know, we use the term research when we're researching other people's research. And that's what I've tried to do there. Try to put, you know, I, I think it's, I kind of think it's my duty. Now, that might sound a bit self-righteous, but I'm very fortunate. I've I've got a good job um, and it, it it's allowed me to learn so much more working at Hill. I can learn about sustainable nutrition and 
I feel that if I got the opportunity, I can I uh, I can share some of this knowledge. You know, I'm not I'm not writing a book to make money. I'm writing a book to 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 share with the world, and hopefully it will lead to you know other. I've got five other books in my head. I've started on the, sec- the second one already, and I've also got notes on a couple of the others. Uh, so over the next few years, that's what I see I want to be doing whilst still working at Huell. And the other main reason that I started writing was this thing called lockdown. When we were stuck inside, I wrote a few sort of essays on this contemplative nutrition, the term I just mentioned. I thought, do you know what? This isn't this isn't three essays. This is a book. So I scrapped them and started again. Wow, good for you. And um, yeah, always a good sign that you're writing another book. I've, I've heard lots of people say after they've written one book, never again. So um, yeah, great, great. And congratulations again. We look forward to perhaps having you back on the podcast once the book has launched. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, I need, and, you know, look, look, the, I'll tell you the biggest challenge I had in the book wasn't writing the thing. It was getting a publisher. It was a nightmare. It took me five months and I thought I would have a degree of credibility with being behind Huel didn't seem to count for anything or it, well, maybe it worked against me. Maybe people thought I was writing a book to say how, how great Huel is. And Huel gets mentioned twice in the whole book, once in the intro and once in the, um, the food technology bit. So it's really not about that at all. Um, and I, you know, yeah, so I'd appreciate any any help I can get. So if I can come back then and, and try and plug the book a bit, that would be much appreciated because I, I want it. I want people to to know it's available. Absolutely, and also that journey of writing a book and finding a publisher may be of a huge amount of interest to some of our listeners thinking about yeah. writing a book themselves. So just to wrap up the episode, James, um, if our listeners are interested in reading more into this area of powders and ready-to-drink meals, are there any resources or particular pieces of research that you would direct them to? Well, there's our um, Frontiers in Nutrition paper, I think is a, is a must read for anyone who's interested. We've got loads, you know, we've got a guides and articles section on huel.com, which some of the articles there are very much written for the lay public and perhaps won't be of much interest to the, the, the type of people that are listening here. But there's a bunch on there that talk about you know, how we how we make Huel, how we create Huel. And yeah, that is for the, the lay audience. But I think we talk about supply chain, where, where, where we procure certain ingredients from, um, how we flavour Huel. I think that might give a bit of an insight to what goes into it. So there are no books or... Uh, major articles on this in this space, of course. Um, I've got, like I said, I've got a few articles that I published on my own LinkedIn page. I've got about seven or eight of them now that people might find interesting. They don't just talk about complete foods, although there's always the, the theme that ties in there in some format. So people might, they're only five, five, ten minute reach, read each. Maybe that's lunch for the next couple of weeks for people. Fantastic. And we've linked to the Huel website in the show notes as well. And my final question to wrap up this episode is, what do you think the future looks like in terms of Huel from a nutritional perspective, James? That's a great question. Um, I We certainly need to be in other regions of the world. Like we've got the US, we're not in Canada yet because they've got some pretty uh, hard regulations, but we will be working on that hopefully at some point. Australia and New Zealand seem, but their their food regulations there are cool. they're a nightmare. I'm still getting my head around them. Uh, and other parts of the world as well. So we're in Japan. Um, that was difficult, but we're expanding there. Then there'll certainly be some more products. Um, it's important though, and I want. I think you're, people should hear this that we 
we only launch what's the right sort of thing. So it's got to, got to stick with the values that we have at Hill. We're not just ticking boxes just to produce more more food that's, that's that we tell people in nutrition uh, nutritional. You know, it's after all, we only have our integrity right as, as a brand. That's all we've got. So we we have to stick to our values, and it served us well so far. So long may that continue. Well, we wish you the best of luck with the future of Huel and with your book launch as well, James. Thank you so much for joining us on The Dietitian Cafe. Thanks very much, Harriet. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, James. So I hope people listening found that to be a great discussion and a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening.